0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, since our last podcast, we got some exciting news about Young and the Restless. So the show has been renewed until 2024, something virtually unheard of these days. Um, You know, Y&R has been the number one rated show for over 31 years, and clearly CBS is confident that Mm -hmm. it will remain popular, which is certainly great news for soap fans, and I mean, and for us, um, you know, it'd be great if the other soaps could get multi year renewals like this. You know, Days' recent one year pickup was like torturously protracted and yielded so many negative headlines all over the world with rumors of cancellation. Um, but the cast reported back to work this week. So there's some good news there too. Hallelujah.
1: I mean, honestly, with everything in, in network television, just feeling so tenuous these days, I would have bet big money against YNR getting a two year renewal. So to know that it's safe for four years is just incredibly heartening. Mm-hmm. Um, as is days being back in production, like I like my cliffhangers on screen, you know, like not in a- <laughs> Nail biters about a show staying on the air.
0: Yeah, here, here. Um, so our Valentine's Day issue was out, and we did something a little different this year. So we pulled our readers at SoapOperaDigest.com and asked them to vote to determine the greatest super couples of all time. So I don't think the top vote getters were any like really big surprise. You know, Luke and Laura, Bo and Hope, Brooke and Ridge, and Nikki and Victor from the shows currently on the air. Um, and you know, because these are really duos that have made such an impact, and their popularity is like universal at this.
1: Yeah, point. totally. Now, um, I have to issue a serious mea culpa to the carjack fans from As the World Turns. Right. Um, so we came up with this idea. We got really excited about it and thought it would be fun for the fans. And we, like, rushed to get the polls up. And I totally neglected to include Jack and Carly as an option for World Turns. And, yes, they should totally have been on the list. And I feel so bad that I messed up. Like, I have felt, like, true guilt. Um, and if you're an angry carjacker and you need to throw daggers at someone... I'm your girl.
0: They can throw it at me too. But we did both have like a <laughs> yeah. horrified moment when yeah. we realized that. I mean, we felt so badly. Like how could we have forgotten Carly and Jack? Yeah. It was, it was human error. That's true. Yeah. Um. I don't know that the results of the winner would have been that much different though. Lillian Holden won. And actually Martha Byrne posted a really nice tweet about it. Um, and they were certainly my number one couple from world turns for sure.
1: You know, there were a few results that surprised me, like maybe because it's who I would have voted for, but I expected to see Todd and Blair at the top of the one life to live list. And they actually came third behind both Bo and Nora, who were the winners and Clint and Vicky, another like long running iconic duo. Um, and I have to say, I was so thrilled to see Jesse and Angie top the all my children list. But I was like really surprised to see uh, Jack and Erica in the second slot besting Cliff and Nina and besting Greg and Jenny. Uh, There were a lot of interesting results like within the five options that we gave
0: uh, for the 10 shows that we covered. I mean, Jack and Erica definitely surprised me, but mainly because, you know, I loved me some Cliff and Nina and Greg and Jenny. Like if I was voting, (laughs) they would have gotten my vote. Um, And I think you may have Todd and Blair goggles on a little bit because they were your faves. You know, Bo and Nora were huge. But, you know, when I think about One Life, it really isn't a show that stands out to me as having like hugely like cover-worthy, popular, like, Mm -hmm. super couples. Mm -hmm. They had favorite couples, yes. They had great couples, yes. But ones that I would necessarily put in the same category as, like, Luke and Laura or Steve and Kayla or even Cricket and Danny... Kind of a no for me.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I, I wrote up the synopses that we gave uh for each of the victorious pairings. And it was really interesting to me how uh because we're dealing for the most part with like long-running duos whose love stories stretched over decades, you see how many um kind of the more like fantastical slope soap cliches creep into their stories as the years go by. Like Taking uh, One Life to Live's Bo and Nora, for example, in the beginning, I think they struck such a chord with the audience because they were, like, kind of sick of seeing him with much younger women and Mm -hmm. Nora was his age and she was as smart as he is and she was witty and they had, like, similar interests and um, they had a really mature and, dare I say, realistic relationship. Right. Right. but, you know, you got to keep the the drama going on a show that has 260 episodes a year. So enter infidelity and divorce and a who's the daddy story with paternity test results that got tampered with and, you know, her marrying his brother and so on and so on. You end up with a lot of marrying each other a whole bunch of times and presumed deaths when an actor like leaves the show for a, a period of time and all of
0: that stuff. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk fantastical tales. I feel like our guest today probably has something to say about those. (laughs) It's actually one half of Guiding Light's most popular duo, Josh and Reva. We are going to welcome Robert Newman, who played the uber-popular Josh Lewis. So let's get him on the phone and check in with him. Hi, Robert. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, happy to be a part of it.
0: Well, we are so happy to talk to you. It's obviously been a while, and we certainly still get lots of letters and emails from fans who miss Guiding Light and yeah. you in particular. So I think they're going to be very yeah. happy to hear what you've been up to.
2: No, that's very sweet. Yeah. I, I still get stopped all the time by fans, you know, just on the street or in the supermarket or whatever. And they, they get very, uh, uh, weepy actually, uh, sometimes, uh, cause they miss this story and they miss these characters so much. And, uh, they often will ask me something like, so what do you think Josh and Reaver are doing today?
0: <laughs> and what do you say? What do you think <laughs> say, they're doing today?
2: Well, uh, Kim, I think, is in New Jersey with her uh, <laughs> grandchild, and I'm uh, in the middle of this play up in wherever. And you know, uh, Or I, I say, well, um, I would imagine it's been about 10 years. They've probably been married to each other again and divorced from each other again. And For they've sure. probably each been married to some other person uh so some other uh, member
1: of each other's family
2: that's right josh was married and divorced nine times on the show during the 28 years i was there so i would imagine he'd be on number 13 or 14 by about now
0: (laughs) in keeping with his track record that works exactly exactly (laughs) well uh let's go back to the beginning of your guiding light experience tell us Mm -hmm. your casting story
2: I had just graduated with my degree in theater at Cal State University Northridge, and I was studying with the Strasberg Institute out there in Los Angeles and sort of, you know, finding my way. And I went to Michigan for uh, a summer of uh, Summer Stock Theater at the Barn Theater, which is still one of my favorite places to work, uh, to get my equity card. So I was an apprentice there. I understudied Tom Wolpat and Carousel, and I got my equity card. And by the way, two other people who got their equity cards that summer were Marin Mazie. And Jonathan Larson, who both went on to pretty good careers.
1: Yeah, pretty good.
2: Uh, Well, Jonathan passed away quite young, but, um, you know, Um, anyway, I, the reason that comes into play is because after that season ended, I went to, I came to New York for what was supposed to be just a week or so to meet some people. Um, And uh, one of my new agents sent me out on a soap opera interview and I'd never, Watched a soap in my life other than Dark Shadows, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> um, but uh, I just didn't know anything about it. I'd never acted on camera before. I was strictly a stage trained person. And uh, I was like, well, what the heck? And uh, I went in and I read for Betty Ray. I don't know if you remember Betty. She was, you know, a, just an extraordinary human being and a wonderful casting director. And she immediately ran me down the hall to Doug Marlin, who was writing the show at the time. And, uh, introduced me to him. And, uh, they talked for a minute and said, can you, they handed me an eight page scene and said, can you come in tomorrow and go on tape? And I said, sure. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) So I came in the next day and there were six of us, including Scott Bryce was reading for the role. And, um, Betty Ray was just amazing. I, I think she could tell I was a little nervous about it and she sat me down and we played some, cards, I think Pinochle or something like that. And uh, finally it came time to shoot the scene. And it was me between me and Jennifer Cook sitting at a bar. And um, I remember in the middle of shooting that audition, that screen test, I uh, went up. I kind of lost my place and there was a pause. And I think they were thinking about what to do. And I mentally went back about three lines and just started three lines earlier with Jennifer and she picked up on it right away. And we just went ahead and did the scene. And later on, Bruce Berry who directed that screen test said to me that uh, one of the things they really liked about me was that I had, I was able to pick up my own dialogue (laughs) after forgetting it. (laughs) So so, um, well done. uh, I I got that role and Scott was cast uh, on as the world turns from that audition. Amazing. So I was Josh. He was,
1: Cra- I the, Craig Craig is that Montgomery, what it is? Craig Montgomery? Mm-hmm.
2: yeah and uh, and uh, they offered me a three- year contract and gave me 10 days to go back to LA where I had not been in almost four months and basically pack up my life and move to New York City. And I did.
1: Where did you and, live? Uh,
2: initially I lived. At what was then called the Times Square Motor Hotel. I was in there for about four weeks while I was looking for an apartment. (laughs) And uh, well, that was back when Times Square was all about hookers and, you know, uh, uh, drug dealers. And, you know, it was crazy. You fit right in. Well, I'm one of those weird people who actually preferred it more then than it is now. Mm-hmm. Now it's very Disney. Mm-hmm. Then I liked it because it was really gritty and cool. But every time I walked into the elevator, it was like taking my life into my hands. And it was a total character study and <laughs> all of these crazy people who were staying at the Times Square Motor Hotel. And I eventually ended up an apartment, uh, $600 a month for a tiny one-bedroom apartment on uh, 10th Street between 2nd and 3rd down in the East village. Wow.
0: And that apartment gram today gram would probably now. be yeah.
2: 2,000 easily. Yeah.
0: I, I, so, 2,000, um, I
2: think I like four. <laughs> yeah. And I remember go- going to the studio my very first day and I got there early cause that's what I do. I had a 7am call and I got there at like 645 and the guard didn't have my name down. And I remember standing there for a minute and thinking, Oh my god, Did, maybe maybe, they, maybe was the, I'm <laughs> going to walk their in. Their video. No, not that guy. We want the other guy. <laughs> you
1: know. Get us Craig uh, Montgomery.
2: Bruce showed up who had directed me a couple of days before, a few days before and uh he, he he I had to use him to get into the studio. <laughs> and my first scenes, I just saw my first scenes not long ago, about a year ago I saw them. Um What'd the you very think? first scene was walking into a bar and uh being greeted by Trish by Rebecca Holland. Mm-hmm. I think I was a terrible actor. That's what I think. I I watched that and I was like, oh my God, why did they even hire me? This is horrible.
0: (laughs) They saw something. Sort of
2: comparing myself to the likes of Tom Pelfrey or somebody like that, who at that age, you know, I mean, Tom was an infinitely infinitely better actor at his age at, at 23 than I was at 23. Let's put it that way. Now you-, but, you know, I grew and I, you know, I I learned things and I studied other actors. I studied Chris Bruno and Jerry Vador and I watched them work and I just sort of found my way.
1: Now you once actually asked Douglas Marland why mm-hmm. he chose you. Do you remember what he said?
2: I do. He said, uh, because you were the only one there who was Josh. Oh,
0: wow.
1: <laughs> I
2: wasn't sure. <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was a compliment or <laughs> what that was, but it, that was just what it was in his head, you know. He just that's the guy. That's the person I want for that role. Um, casting is a real mysterious thing. You know, I still go through casting all the time to, you know, work on stage or work on television. And if you're not the guy they have in mind, then you're not going to probably get that role. Mm-hmm. They say a lot of casting happens within uh, the first 30 seconds that you walk in the room. You
1: just you know, had before that. Before
2: you even read for something, they just, oh, yeah, that's, that's the guy or that's definitely not the guy.
1: You had that big Josh vibe about you.
2: Whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, that was, his, that was, of course, his bad guy days. So, you know, I oh, guess I had. Right. I, he was I play a lot edgier then. I play a lot of bad guys now. Oh, interesting. <laughs> my daughter tells me, who's 27, my daughter Kendall, and I'm not sure if I should say this on a podcast, but she tells me I've grown into uh, having resting asshole face. <laughs> <laughs> so so i get caught cast as a lot of bad guys frequently now
0: that's <laughs> hilarious yeah. that's so special funny. skills yes, i like that exactly yeah.
1: exactly <laughs> um so did you know doug well like in the days that he wrote guiding guiding light i mean he's such a legendary figure in the daytime world
2: i did he was you know he really loved his actors and um we, uh, I would occasionally go to his house, not, not on my own, of course, but with, you know, maybe a group of five or six of us. And we'd go up to his house in Connecticut and, uh, you know, he'd have us for dinner or something like that. You know, he lived a very interesting sort of extravagant lifestyle. He had a big honkin' mansion, I think up in maybe Ridgefield or something like that. And, um, he, uh, he had a, a full-time Sort of manservant who was his cook and his valet, and he drove him everywhere and that kind of thing, and just a super sweet guy. And then we had a really nice encounter. There was one point when Doug was so upset about um, CBS and Procter and Gamble messing with his scripts that he just left town, and he went up and did this. did a, It was so odd. He did a production of Gypsy playing Herbie like up on Cape Cod somewhere. And I happened to be up in that area and I went to see the show and we, you know, chatted afterwards. We went to dinner, I think the next night. And, you know, it was really nice little bonding time. Um, and he told me he was, he was not, we started, let me back up a little bit because we went through this period where suddenly we weren't getting any scripts for the week and we really weren't getting scripts until like the day before we'd shoot. And this was this time period when Doug was so angry at them that he just withheld all the scripts and basically that's wrote amazing. most of them himself
1: that's like an Erna Phillips uh, move
2: yeah and he wouldn't he just wouldn't submit the script until he, the absolute last minute before he had to he'd get it to the director like two days before the shoot and then they and then the cast members would get it the next day and then we'd shoot it the next day and he did that for a while and then, and not long after that was when he left and uh went off to um I don't know where he ended up world turns or something like that
1: I like a, a petty man, Robert. So I'm digging this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did wind up a world turn. So, yeah,
0: but he was yeah, really it all worked out uh, well. Just, and then maybe he,
1: left to do to create loving. Maybe. Tra- yeah, I don't, I don't I know think the time right. frame yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I think that might be right. If he needed a break from
0: CBS, maybe that's what happened.
2: Loving, which of course my wife worked on mm-hmm. many years ago. <laughs>
1: yes,
0: yes. Now speaking of your wife, you two have been mm-hmm. happily married since 1986. But tell us For about the- <laughs> sorry.
2: Uh, happily for the most part, but okay. go ahead. <laughs> um,
0: but tell us about being a single, footloose, and fancy-free guy in New York in those early Guiding Light years. Living in Times Square, like well, maybe some I Studio 55, 54 I, trips I've heard I, of.
2: I don't want to get too <laughs> far down that road, I, I definitely made the most out of being single and living in Manhattan and being on a soap opera, and uh, there's... Several nights that I probably don't remember at all, and several <laughs> nights that I wouldn't mind forgetting. And, you know, it was a it was, and it was such a big deal then. You know, I mean, that was still at the high point of the soap operas. You know, really, the eighties was like a huge peak. Mm-hmm. And you know, everywhere I went, Studio Fifty Four. Yeah, you go to Studio Fifty Four, and there'd be a huge line outside, and you'd walk up to the guy at the door, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, come on in, Mister Newman." Sure, you know. Uh, Hard Rock Cafe, I remember, was a big deal. And you could, nobody could get in. And then you'd, I'd just go, hey, hi, I'm Robert Newman from the Soap opera guiding Light. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, Josh, come on in. It's and amazing. every airplane I walked on to, I would, the stewardess would come back. The flight attendant would come back and be like, uh, Mr. Newman, we have a seat for you up front. Uh, uh, it became available. You want to bring your stuff? And, uh, she moved me up to first class and hotels were like that, too. You know, it was it was great.
0: That's amazing. And we all,
2: and a lot of us, you know, we kind of hung out together to a certain extent, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for, um, a group of like that same crowd, like Tommy Nielsen and John Shipp and Jennifer and Carolyn Clark and Lisa Brown. And, you know, we just kind of be out and about at these events all the time. And then we'd hang out for drinks afterwards and that kind of thing.
1: Sweet. Great. Totally. Yeah. So uh, the Josh and Reva story that remains so popular with our readers mm. began mm. when Kim Zimmer joined the show in 1983, and she mm-hmm. actually uh, told Digest that you were mean to her in the beginning. Is that how you remember <laughs> it?
2: <laughs> I know, I, I, but I understand how she thinks that. She and I have talked about that before. So you maybe know, you I,
0: actually had your resting... A asshole face. Face. Yeah. Yeah, totally. asshole face. I think it was
2: more along the lines of a sarcastic what I thought of as a sort of funny sarcastic sense of humor but she took uh, she she took things to heart. So uh, she's not wrong. Certainly, uh, if that's the way she remembers it, and that's the way she felt about it. She's certainly not wrong about that. But um, I don't think I was ever intentionally trying to be mean to Kim Zimmer. I just, that's not really my nature. <laughs> But I think uh, if I joked about something uh, and uh, she and she just didn't find it funny, then I would certainly understand how she would feel that way. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, we just did a poll for our readers for our Valentine's Day issue of the greatest soap couples of all Mm -hmm. time from each show. Josh and Riva, not surprisingly, were number one for guiding light by a landslide by a landslide. And, you know, they had so many iconic moments over the years, but I think probably what stands out to so many people was the fountain scene in 1984 Mm -hmm. when Reva baptized herself the slut of Springfield and called Josh out for only seeing her as a sex object. Um, So what are your (laughs) memories of that day of shooting? (laughs) Uh,
2: I think we did that. uh, I think we taped the dress that day. Kim and I frequently would ask, you know, back in those days, there would be a dress rehearsal. You'd, You'd do a camera blocking and then there'd be a dress rehearsal and then there'd be notes and then you'd shoot the scene um that changed dramatically as the years went on particularly as we got into the um, 2000s but um
1: and the pepack years
2: oh my god yeah <laughs> sorry uh that i've got a nervous twitch that whenever i hear that <laughs> that the name of that town i just kind of uh, um uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yes. The fountain, the fountain scene. scene. I, I am in that scene, right? There, I...
1: Yes, you, you tell her to put her clothes <laughs> yes, back okay. on. It's very important. So
2: anyway, when Kim and I would have these like really emotional scenes, we would often just say, you know what? Can we just tape the dress rehearsal? Because when you're doing a scene like that, you know, a dress rehearsal can be very beneficial for cameras and lights and sound and everybody else. But if you've done a good camera blocking and sort of gotten everything in the right place then, um, to try to get to that emotional place, uh, probably in that scene more for her than for me, but to, to, to get to that emotional place for a dress rehearsal is, it's almost like a waste. It's like, if we did ha- had done a dress rehearsal, uh, first of all, she, you know, she would have had to change because her, she gets, all her clothes get wet in that scene. Um, but also, you know, she, she'd probably hold back on the dress rehearsal. And you do something like that, and then you get a note like, you know, if you could go a little further. And you're like, yeah, I know, but, you know, I don't want to sort of peek and waste it without, uh, unless the tape's rolling. And so I'm pretty sure with that scene, we just taped the dress. And uh, I think it was the single take. She just slam dunked it right out of the box. And, you know, it's like, let's move on. So it's it's interesting to me that, that some of these most iconic scenes that you think about for Josh and Reva, the, the, didn't necessarily go the full rehearsal process. They went to where we were ready to go. Mm-hmm. So let's shoot, you know?
1: I love that. And
2: 99% of the time that was the take that they would use. And sometimes they wouldn't even go beyond. I don't think we did a second take of that scene. I'm quite certain of that.
1: All right. So another iconic moment is they got to have like the, their from here to eternity moment, And Mm -hmm. had a passionate reunion on the beach with the the waves coming in. Uh, Probably more romantic on screen than it was to shoot, but you tell me. I think that was shot in South Carolina. It was
2: (laughs) absolutely freezing cold. I mean, (laughs) they had an ambulance on the beach just for us. So when we would finish shooting some segment, we would, and we're soaking wet, we would go into the ambulance, not just to get warm, but also to breathe oxygen and that kind of thing, because it was such a freezing cold thing. And I remember there was something about oil, something Bruce Barry had this idea of, I don't remember if they covered the clothes in oil or I don't remember how it worked, but, um, it just, we just hit it the wrong time. You know, it was, we were on Hilton Head Island, um, which both of us have been to many, many times for charity golf things. But, um, in this case, we were here, it was doubling as Venezuela, I think. And, um, we just happened to hit it on a freezing cold day to shoot those scenes so that, that picture that you've seen a thousand times that was basically a remake of the picture from here to eternity or this the scene where i'm we're in actually in the water and i think i flip her upside down or something like that and so you know that kind of thing um it was just so cold uh yeah so Less romantic in the actual shooting of it.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now you went on another location for the Josh Reva wedding in 1989, Mm -hmm. uh, which took place in, you know, Cross Creek. Um, So tell us about that whole experience of being on location, you know, with so much of the cast and crew in just that moment.
2: That may have been my favorite day of shooting ever. And it was certainly my favorite episode ever. Um, I think I've, you know, that I didn't really watch the show in any kind of a regular way. Um, I always felt a little uncomfortable watching myself on camera, so I just kind of stayed away from it. Um, I didn't, I I didn't want to be self-conscious about myself and I felt like if I watched too much of myself on television, I would start being self-conscious about things. And, but that episode in particular, because I remember it was submitted for, uh, that was what they submitted that year for um, the daytime Emmy awards for best show. And I think we didn't win. I'm not sure. I think it didn't win, but um, that day with all of those, with, with just all of those people, you know um, you know, not just Larry Gates and, and Jordan. And, you know, uh, I think it was a first day for,
0: Uh,
1: I think Morgan England
2: Morgan England. Yeah. I remember that whole thing of him jumping in the water, to, <laughs> which he wasn't supposed to do and the wardrobe panicked because he did it. But, um, uh, and also we had friends there. Um, one of two of our closest friends from Hilton head, actually Gail and David Wingo were, were in the, um, were extras in that scene. Uh, they had been down there when we shot the thing in, um, on Hilton head. And in fact, David wrote a song that was used for either the wedding or the Hilton head thing or something like that. But they were there. Betty Ray was there, um, uh, as one of the actresses, as one of the extras. Um, it, and it was just a perfect day. I mean, the weather couldn't have cooperated better. And Joanne Sedwick, who directed that episode, she just, she managed some shots and I couldn't tell if it was like, she just got super lucky or, but that, there's a specific shot of Reva coming across, uh, on the rowboat and she's got that big white hat on and everything in that shot is to me is almost feature film quality. It's just like perfect lighting and the way she's playing it and everything is just so exactly right. And, uh, I just think it's a beautiful episode. It was it, certainly my yeah. favorite of the weddings. Of the many weddings. The, <laughs> the many, my of the many. Of, many all, weddings. Yes. of all
1: the nine. Yes. Um, well, I want you to know that every July twenty-third, I still take a moment to watch the clip of Reva driving off the bridge to her presumed death in <laughs> Key West. Poor Josh is standing there on the other side of the bridge going, yeah. Reva, no
2: <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's emblazoned in my heart and mind. Uh what do you remember about that trip to Key West and shooting uh that the end of that chapter of Josh and Reba. Yeah,
2: that's a lot of things because, you know, I I wasn't sure. I know it was the, uh, in retrospect, I know it was the end of that chapter, but at that time I wasn't sure exactly where the show was going to go from there. And I actually, my contract was up and I agreed to extend it for uh, a a period, a short period of time, just to get to the end of what the story that I think Pam was writing. Then is that right? Wanted to Mm -hmm. tell. And in fact, she sat me down up at her house, her house in Connecticut to sort of lay out the whole, you know, what she had hoped to achieve. Um, Not only in that moment, but then what followed. Um, But a couple of things I remember, Um, a couple of technical things that were kind of funny. One is um, I remember I was hanging out with Bruce Berry, who directed that episode, um, and he was talking to the stunt guys. And he was, there was an issue of, he didn't want the car to veer at all. It had, because of the camera work, he wanted it coming straight off that bridge and straight centered off the bridge. And they, there's no way it's going to. It's all been put, put together. It's, it's this. Uh, you know, we're controlling it this way or doing it that way. It's all going to be perfect. And, of course, when we shot it, the car just veers and slams <laughs> and
1: it.
0: Goes
2: off, you know? But he somehow managed to keep his cameras going. And, and uh, I think he loosened up his shots a little bit because he still didn't trust them. So I remember that. I also remember um, the, the diving into the water, mm-hmm. searching for Reva part. You know, um, that took a while. The water was warmer than it was in Hilton Head, you know, earlier. But uh, this was down on Marathon Key in, in Florida. And, um, they had me d- diving down and grabbing onto, uh, I don't remember if it was a plant or it was something that they put in there, but I would have to grab onto this thing and wait, count a little bit, and then come up because they needed me to come up in the right place for the cameras to catch me coming up out of the water. That whole business of Josh diving under and diving under and diving under, looking for Reva. And then I remember a really nice bonding moment with Bruce where, um, we had the scene where Josh tells Mara, and that was Ashley
1: Pelton, yeah. maybe? Mm-hmm. it was.
2: Very young. I think, what, five or six years old, maybe mm-hmm. seven, something like that. And um, they actually had written dialogue for it. And um, Bruce was laying out the scene and showing me where, how he wanted to shoot it. And I said, you know, what if we don't hear the dialogue? What if you see them out there at the end of the pier? And you see Josh telling her something, but you don't actually hear what the dialogue is. And then she does sort of this abrupt turn towards the house and then falls into his arms and cries.
0: You um, know, our say, own Mara is getting a little emotional <laughs> yeah. right now. I need mean to tell you, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm literally playing
1: the scene in my head. I watched it <laughs> yeah. so many times,
2: and that's if you watch that scene, that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. So the all the camera work was from the shore, I think, and we were out at the end of the pier. Yeah, I'm getting a little goosebumpy myself because <laughs> I remember it was just one of those times with a with an actor and a director and producers where like there's this. Like we all knew it was sort of the right idea, you know, and, and it turned out beautiful. I thought it was one of the most beautiful scenes in the, in the piece.
1: And not but to I be biased. I, Ashley Peldon was a really, really, really good mark. She was, she was you know, awesome. She was
2: great. Um, and then the stuff that I really didn't know that I referenced earlier, where exactly where, you know, where things were going to go was the whole Josh Harley um, relationship that sort of came out of that. Um, which people still mention to me, which I think is really interesting. They're like, oh, I really liked it when Josh and Harley were together. And I'm like, that was like a minute.
1: I, I have like, the vapors right now. You, like, I mean, so I know I've told you this. They were my all-time favorite yeah, couple all, of all time. When and you I, when you talked about how you might not have extended your contract, I started going into an alternate universe where my the course of my life would have been changed if there had been no Josh <laughs> and Harley. Well, the reason
2: the reason it was limited was because I extended my contract so far and then I left. You know and. Oh, I'm painfully
1: aware, Robert. That was as far as they got in the story
2: (laughs) because I just had to go again. It's hard to explain the two times that I left the show. Both times I just had to go and I knew I had to go. And somehow I also kind of knew that I might be back. But um, it's just, you know, they're they're just, when you're on a long term soap contract like that, there are times when it just gets under your skin and you just feel like you've got to. Have a clean break and do some other things and then maybe come back at some point. And later I dealt with that in a better way where um I would just leave for six weeks to go do a musical somewhere or go do a play somewhere and then come back and feel very refreshed. Um
0: it's a grind.
1: I mean, I think people understand you know well, that you need a break. But also
2: that. when I came back the second time, um by then, you know, both Connor and Kendall were born. Uh, Britt and I made a very um Definite decision that we didn't want to raise our children in Los Angeles for various reasons. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but we just didn't feel like that was the right place to raise our kids. Every kid in L.A. is in the business somehow. They've all got pictures and resumes and agents. And we just didn't want that for our kids. We wanted them to have a relatively normal upbringing. And we felt like uh, the East Coast would be a better place to raise them. And um, so when I went back to the show after the second time I had left, so I think now we're probably 1992, ish. Um,
1: you came back in I pretty much 93.
2: Yeah, I was coming back. It was like, I knew that I was going to be staying as long as they would have me because I just wanted to raise my kids. And the, the, the wonderful thing about being on a long-term soap when you're, when you're a parent is I got more time with my kids than any working dad that I knew because I didn't travel all that much. I didn't necessarily work five days a week. It was often three days or two days. I could coach soccer. I could coach baseball. I could do all those things dads are supposed to do, and I just had a lot of time, a lot of great time with my kids. And because I was, you know, making soap opera money, Britt didn't feel any need to to uh, have another to have a job of her own. And we talked; we had talked about that early on, and she said, "No, I I think I'd rather raise the kids." And so it really worked out great, and we have two just amazing children, well, adults. You know, they're thirty and twenty-seven now, and they're just extraordinary human beings. Oh.
1: I uh, I was reading an old interview of yours where uh, you talked about how I think in the period where you lived in LA and between your ninety near nineteen ninety exit and your ninety three return that you lived mm. like really near Grant Alexander and Michael O'Leary <laughs> who were also on a break yeah. from the show.
2: Oh, we lived next door to Michael (laughs) 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 O'Leary. We were, we were in a, well, we, it makes sense because we were trying to find a townhouse somewhere and Michael and Joni at that time, they've, they've uh, been divorced since then, but Michael and Joni were, uh, living in a townhouse in Marina Del Rey, uh, overlooking the Marina part, not the ocean part. And, um, they suggested, Hey, why don't you come look? It's a great place to live. And we like being here and blah, blah, blah. And we went and literally the unit next door to them was available. It might've been one unit over. I'm not sure. But, um, but yeah, we were like right next to each other and, um, uh, we would all go do laundry together
0: because
2: <laughs> there was no, there wasn't any laundry on the premises, but just down the block, there was a, a laundromat and a restaurant. And we would all go like on whatever day, Thursday or something, and put all our laundry in, go hang out in the restaurant for a while, you know, transfer. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a lot of bonding back then. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, you know, Michael and uh, Grant and I were all friends already. I mean, we Grant and I bonded earlier on. Uh, before Brett, I would say, uh, before I left the show the first time, Grant and I had bonded, bonded, quite a bit of time, quite a bit and spent quite a bit of time together back in that day.
0: That's always nice to hear mm-hmm. yeah. that it's real. Um, so I think it's kind of hard to look back on Josh and Reba without mentioning the very controversial clone storyline, <laughs> um,
1: Okay. So <laughs> you get getting one of those
0: pee pack twitches when we bring up yeah. the word clone? <laughs> like, that's definitely not uh, my yes. favorite kind of storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was that. There was the time travel story. You know, were those sort of yeah. a groaner for you? Or was it just another story among hundreds that you played over
2: the well, years? Well, I'm positive I've told you this story before. But, you know, there was a real – It was the cloning story was – there was sort of an epiphany for me on that one because – when Paul Rausch told me about it, uh, just a few days before we started shooting it, I was just beside myself and I just didn't know what to do. And I, you know, I'm like, should I quit the show? Should I refuse to do this? Cause I just knew it was just a ridiculous idea. It was just crazy. And I really had a hard time with it. And I remember that was on a Friday. We were going to start shooting the first few scenes with me and, um, Oh, what was his name? He Peter played the Herman. doctor, Peter, Peter Herman, who I adore. Um, and I remember um, Saturday, I was a train wreck and I'm reading these scripts and I'm like, oh my God, this is insane. Because it wasn't even the cloning, it was the rapid growth formula that was really right. making me that <laughs> crazy about it. And I was like, the, what are they thinking? This is just insane. And it was so far out of our sweet spot, you know? The real strength of guiding light to me was always about family that was the core of what made guiding light such a great show was you had the dynamic between a father and a son and a a, a husband and wife and a a daughter and you know the hb reva josh billy mindy all of that stuff was what made the show so great you know to me in my view so this was like this isn't even our you know this is the wrong genre what are we doing you know um but then i woke up sunday morning and i was fine and it was like what happened and i said i don't know just some somewhere in the middle of the night it hit me that this is going to happen uh i don't have control over it i can hate it and be miserable every single minute or i can choose to embrace it and just give it everything I've got to give and just maybe even enjoy it. And, uh, and I honestly don't know where that came from. I don't know if it was like a God thing or something. I don't know, but it really allowed me to just settle. And the next day, uh, Peter came in and, you know, Peter was all like, what the hell is happening? (laughs) And I I told him that story and he was like, I think that's pretty great. I think I'm going to, I'm with you. Let's go. And so that's the way we tackled that story, you know, and uh, I remember that ridiculous ending when uh, when I came to
1: the next day (laughs) to be like,
2: I've changed my mind. And he goes, oh, it's too late. He comes into (laughs) the back room and comes out with a with a preemie a baby and and they did uh, josh lewis meet riva shane you know and both peter and i just burst out laughing and the whole crew just burst out <laughs> laughing and the, and the dress for re- this was the dress rehearsal and paul was livid he came out he's like you can't make fun of this and i said paul if i can't make fun of this i'm going my head's gonna explode you just need to you just need to leave me alone and let me do what i do okay and He was like well we can't you know we're You know, Paul was always so intense about everything. And I was like, Paul, just, just, you got to trust me. And of course we did the take and it was perfect and everything, you know? So, um, that's the way I approached the story. And and I just tried to, you know, find the good things about it that I could find throughout the course of it, but I knew it was going to be unpopular. And it was, it's pop, it's more popular now, I think, as people remember it than it was that we, the, then
0: when we were actually watching. Yeah, we yeah. got
2: some horrible fan mail for, on that thing and and they lost a lot of viewers during that time and you know, it was I I thought it was so funny that the Bible Belt was all freaked out about the cloning but they didn't have anything to say about the rapid growth formula, which again, <laughs> to me that was the really <laughs> ridiculous part of the story. You're
1: like, why is no one feeling me on this? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah um, well we'll we'll move on from Josh and the Oh, this. and they
2: also by the way, they also promised me I would never sleep with the clone.
1: Uh-huh.
2: and that didn't, and then I got the first, and it, it turned out not just once, but twice <laughs> I was with the clone, and boy, I got some real bizarre mail on that one, because it was, you know, suddenly it was Josh, the the uh, child molester or something, I mean, it was like, oh my God, I can't,
0: you can you know, she's only now. six months,
2: she's only six months old, you know, and you're like, oh,
0: oh
1: man,
2: and then the, um, and then that was followed by the uh, two things: the time travel and the um, the Annie, uh, yeah, uh, mind control thing or whatever you call that. You know, because I remember being with a group of my fellow soap opera buddies from all the shows, and right after that period, and I said, no, 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 I win. <laughs> <laughs> we're comparing ridiculous stories, and I said, no, 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 I had the clone. I had the mind control drug, and I had the time travel storyline so <laughs> You're
1: like that was the craziest
2: craziest <laughs> I guess about two years on on of my all my time on God oh
1: man yeah. now uh as we we talked about Josh did you know marry other women and have other leading ladies you were, you mm-hmm. were uh, worked with Michelle Forbes and Cynthia Watros yeah. and Crystal Chappelle. Mm-hmm. um. But those relationships were always like runners up to Josh, Josh and Reva, you know, Um, as an actor, like, did you find being part of a super couple on the show to be a blessing or a curse or a bit of both?
2: Oh, you know, I don't think it affected me really in that way. I didn't, you know, I, I just, uh, I always focused on the script that was in front of me today or the storyline that's in front of me this week or or this month. I didn't, I didn't, I I purposely tried to stay out of the minds of the viewers and just focus on the work that I had to do to play the character to the best of my ability that was, that was given to me. And I loved, um, I certainly still love Crystal. Uh, (laughs) I still work with her on Venice, you know, and Mm -hmm. and I adore Crystal. I've always loved Crystal. I love Cynthia was just a, a, just a force to be reckoned with in her own way. And, you know, she was just fantastic. Michelle Forbes. I knew Michelle really didn't like doing soap opera from like day one. <laughs> and I knew she was she wasn't going to be with us for very long. And, you know, she got out of her contract early cause she was just not happy with it, but what a tremendous actor to be working with her and Joe Breen, um, both of them. I don't know if you remember Joe. Yeah. He was-
1: Will Jeffries.
2: Yeah. Well, Jeffries, I mean, the, th- the three of us and really the four of us, including Kim, I mean, we really had some amazing stuff to play there. That, that was actually a pretty good story. I thought, um, but, you know, having said all of that, I also know that for the fans, you know, they they wanted Josh and Riva together. And, you know, I think the things that the writers always understood, and you guys probably always understood, and, and we understood, was that y- when, y- once you get them together, you have to break them up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't just have Josh and Riva be happy for the next 10 years. It's just, it just can't, the story can't be told that way. So, um uh, I just invested entirely in whatever, um, uh, leading lady they put me with at any given time. I just, I just dove in a hundred percent and did my job, you know? And, um, so it didn't really affect me in the way that you're suggesting I mean, where it wasn't a blessing. It wasn't a curse. Mm -hmm. It was just what it was. And I always knew that, um, uh, but I always knew too, that Kim and I had a different kind of chemistry, I think than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I wouldn't want to say that about the men that she worked with that weren't Josh, but, um, but I just knew, and we still do. I mean, for the few fans who were able to see us on stage in the Lion in winter, or even more uh, to the point who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah. It's like, we, we just have this thing that happens on stage or in front of a camera um, that connects us uh, or even in, in these, this recent, uh, few episodes of Venice that we shot together. I watched a little bit of that and I was like, wow, look at us. Hmm. <laughs> Still got it. Still got it, baby.
0: <laughs> um, now is known as we could say you were for the romances on the show. You also were part of a very iconic family, the Lewises. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say the name Jordan Clark, who played Josh's brother, mm-hmm. Billy, what comes to mind?
2: I just love that man. Uh, you know, I, he and I just, I've never had great relationships with my brothers. I have um, my brother and my two stepbrothers, and they've never been good relationships. Jordan sort of filled that um, place for me. Um, and I think in a way I did for him too. And the kind of work that he and I did together, um, was not just about two actors reading lines. It was, it was, uh, two men who really appreciated each other. We had long talks about all kinds of things and, um, not just the show. It's, it's easy to sit and yap about the show, you know, and, but, um, all all kinds of things. And, um, um, he and I would ru- always run dialogue, you know, most, most, most people I ran dialogue, but, uh, he and I very specifically would get together when we have scenes together, uh, on our own in a dressing room and just bat back and forth ideas and line readings and, and just, we would find this rhythm between the two of us, uh, that just made shooting the scene that much more special, whatever the scenes were. But just, and I, there's very few actors that I, I'm trying to say this without sounding like I'm too full of myself, but you know, there's, there's very few actors that I watch. And I think, I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I could do what he does. It's just so genuine and honest and true and real. And Jordan is one. Um, and I would say Justin Dees was probably one too. Those two guys, they just, bring something else to the table and I think a lot of it has to do with their own life histories you know Jordan went through a lot of things in his life and uh, I think the, those always were sort of just out there and available emotionally for him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I um, covet that you know that's a uh, it's it's just gr- a great way to work
1: your father on the show H.B. Uh, Lewis was played by the late great Larry Gates uh, tell us about working with him and your relationship with him
2: Well, in a similar way, you know, I, I had a, I also had a difficult relationship with my own father and, um, Larry, Larry was just a tremendous mentor to me and a father figure to me. I learned more about the craft from him than any person I've ever worked with then and since then. Um, he was just so honest in his portrayal of that character. I remember when they talked briefly after Larry had passed away and they talked briefly about um, uh, replacing him. And I was like, God, no, please don't do that. I just, and even when they, I think, what, what was that weird period where they found somebody to be Larry it was like in a movie or something, or it was something in PPAC, And I can't remember what it was.
1: Is that when they, they were doing? Another, the Josh and Riva movie?
2: Maybe they had like another H. B. Lewis or something. And I was like, yeah, just don't. It's almost like when they tried to replace Jordan,
0: mm-hmm. right? You
2: know, with uh, Jeffrey. I can't get his last name in my head, but um, yeah, and he was a nice enough nice guy. But the you just there's just some people that you feel like you can't replace, and Larry was definitely one of them. And um, yeah, you know, I miss him all the time, and I think about some of the lessons he taught me. And I, you know, he taught me a lot about being willing to make a complete horse's ass out of yourself. (laughs) And I always think about that when I'm doing, you know, I just finished playing Daddy Warbucks for the third time. And there's just so much playfulness in that role and in that musical. And I think about that idea, you know, just, just, just make fun of yourself and just enjoy it, you know. And um, he and I talked quite a bit right before he died. I went up to his I would go up to his place up in Connecticut about uh, every couple of weeks or so, and we'd just sit and chat for a couple of hours. And and now I look back on it and I think, why didn't I bring a camera and a <laughs> tripod and just set mm-hmm. this stuff up? And and then he was gone. And um, one of the saddest moments for me prior to his death was um, he and Kim and I had always thought about getting on stage together. In the early days, it would have been Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with you know Larry playing big daddy and, and, um, Kim and myself. And, um, of course we all got, Kim and I anyway got too old for that. So, (laughs) but I remember he, about two years before he died, he was away doing, uh, playing the narrator in our town and he came back and I said, how'd it go? And he said, Robert, I'm never going to step on a stage again. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, there were just many times when I didn't know where I was I couldn't remember the lines I couldn't remember the dialogue and I, I remember my heart sank for him because that's a terrible place to be in on stage but also that my heart sank because I knew he and I would never get on stage together and that would have been the one thing that I wish mm-hmm. I really had done I oh, wish wow. I had just made that happen somewhere um that's but scary. uh I miss him all, every I miss him terribly mm-hmm
0: I know we're both uh, (laughs) like, yeah, (laughs) we need a moment. Well, it's, you know,
1: I have to say it's interesting. It just goes to me to speak to, I think Guiding Light was such a powerfully multi-generational show. And I was such a fan of Larry Gates's when I was watching that show as like a 12 year old. You know, it's, I'm so glad I got to see him work and the two of you work together.
2: Yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing. We had some really funny times and some really, And I've told the story before, I think, before that I, um, you know, I spoke at his funeral, Larry's funeral, and then the writers came to me when it was time for HB's funeral and asked me to write my own eulogy, Josh's eulogy, um, which I did, and uh, which and which they edited, by the way. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. Well, no, they I wrote it too long. That was the bottom line. So they helped me to kind of find the places to. Cut, cut out and uh and I just remember that day um where Kim and Jordan and I were at a table um to, waiting to shoot some scenes and we would we were telling Larry stories and we were just laughing and crying and and then they would roll tape and there would be uh, Billy Riva and Josh telling stories laughing crying you know, it was it was the most uh, it was the most I'd ever experienced. Life and art just being right on top of each other at, in the same moments, and uh, it was hard. It was uh it was hard.
0: Um, now, obviously, with guiding light being you know such an important part of your life, um, what do you remember about getting the news of the cancellation?
2: I was. Uh, on my way to P-Pac, and uh, I got there and a producer came running up to my car as I pulled up because they'd already started shooting. And I was, my call was later, like at 11 or something. And he said, uh, I, I have some terrible news. And I immediately thought of Brett and Connor and Kendall. And I was like, you know, what? <laughs> and he said, the show has been canceled. And I was like, oh, jeez god you scared the hell out of me what a terrible i mean my god what you know because he was so like upset you know and so like full and and i and i just i didn't mean to blow it off like it didn't mean anything but um you know where my mind went first was so frightening that the idea of the show being canceled was secondary and um and then i also I had another thing that had happened that week where some very close friends of mine lost their 23-year-old son in a car accident in um, on the New Jersey Turnpike. He was killed. Oh, God. And uh, they asked Britt and I to sing at uh, his memorial service, which was that day, April 1st. And um, I couldn't, because I, I couldn't get out of the show. I had to work. But I knew... Britt was going to sing at the memorial service. And, um, and I knew the memorial service started at, um, I think, 1230. It was an afternoon service. And uh, when Ellen and uh, the other folks from P&G or whatever called us all in to the main sort of cafeteria area up there in PPAC to talk to us about the cancellation of the show, the minute she started talking, I looked up at the clock and uh, it was 1230. And I thought, wow. Of not just Brit, but I thought about our friends, the Crockett's sitting in the front row of that church and their son in a casket. And I just thought, I can handle this. I can handle this. I can't handle what they're doing right now, but I can handle this. This is this is a job. You know, it's the fact that I had the job for so long is... One thing, but it's just still a job. We all change jobs; people change jobs on a regular basis. I can do this, and so it just gave me a perspective that um, you know just helped me to work through it. I think in a different way that that others might have worked through it, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. for sure.
2: And also, um, in those last few months, I was working on stage. I was doing a musical called Sessions uh, uh, off Broadway. Um, I was doing the last couple of months of guiding light and eight performances a week (laughs) of this musical that continued on after the show ended. So after we shot our last day, I actually went to work the next day for the, for the matinee of of sessions. So I didn't have that sort of weird period of adjustment that I think every, a lot of other people experienced. Mm -hmm. And I continued with sessions for another three months after that. So I just, I just kept working, you know? And so, then I remember I, 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 uh, I do have a picture that I, I'm not sure if I ever posted it or not, but it was a picture I sent off to my, some of my friends of uh, the day after sessions closed the next day I had Kendall take a picture of me. I was in like a bathrobe and bunny slippers and I had like a mud, <laughs> a mud pack on my face, my hair up in, in a shower cap and a martini in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And I was like, ah, unemployment day one. <laughs> If I if I can find that, I'll send it to you.
1: Oh, please do. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm
2: not sure I want you to publish it. No, we won't. <laughs> no, just for us. I think just for our. It. Fun. I'm just gonna
1: keep it in my wallet. It's totally normal. It's fine. <laughs> um, the uh, the final scene of Guiding Light was set a year in the future, and Josh and Riva got their happily ever after. At least you know. <laughs> at least on CBS, yeah,
2: I guess, yeah, okay. yeah.
1: We well, <laughs> we have to assume that there have been like, as we said, seven. To nine divorces uh, following yes, that, but right. tell us, remember uh, what you remember about that day and that experience uh, of actually playing Josh for the last time.
2: Well, there's two different things there. You know, we did we didn't. Sh- the last day of shooting wasn't the lighthouse. Um, that was actually shot a few days before the last day of shooting. So there was that experience where we actually shot the last scene what we knew was the last scene of, of the, yeah, of the entire episode. That was the last scene. I think about it. The last line is, uh, is, uh, always, I think, right. Reva saying always. And, um, so that experience, I don't know, that was kind of a fun day, actually. Again, a very pretty day. We, we both, I think, liked the idea that they were jumping ahead in time. I remember I was very confused as to what the kid was doing there. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who is this? And why are we driving off into the sunset with Jeffrey's kid? I don't, not under, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> but, but not my job, you know. <laughs> so
1: I'm sure um, Josh rapidly aged him as soon as they <laughs> faded to black. Sure, sure. <laughs>
2: Uh, we both loved the truck. I remember that both of us <laughs> wanted to buy the truck, <laughs> but it wasn't for sale. Um, and then, so that, that day was a lovely day and, and, uh, you know, it was a, it was a nice day of shooting, but the final day, um, you know, the, everybody knows the whole story. You know, Grant was running around with tequila shots for everybody. And at the end of every scene, when if it was the person's last scene, the stage manager would announce that person and how many years they'd been on the show and that kind of thing. And that included the crew as well. You know, they would... Uh, and it was just like a big party day. Um, I I don't quite remember the last, the very last scene we shot. I think it was outside of the what was supposed to be Cross Creek and I think it had to do with a car or something like that. Um, I just don't remember what scene it was though, but you know, Kim and I shot our last scene and, uh, um, both took a shot at tequila and (laughs) (laughs) hung out for the rap party. You know, we had a big rap party that day. And as I usually do, I remember I left that early. Um, I'm I'm still, I'm still pretty extreme in terms of being an introvert and, you know, I just have trouble being around large crowds of people and I hung around for a couple of hours and left.
1: Plus you had to work the next day. Unlike uh, all those other tequila drinkers.
2: I did. Yeah, that's true.
0: You're busy. And
2: a week later I was able to take a week off the musical and my family and I went down to Mexico for a week.
0: Very nice. More tequila. And continued the, continued the tequila. That's right. Um, now, is there ever a chance that you would return to a soap, even though they're all on the West Coast? What if one came calling?
2: I don't know. My agent asked me that just the other day. He, um, yeah, uh, I, I guess, uh, because uh, a few weeks ago, they somebody contacted him about like just a cameo kind of thing. They wanted to know if I was in LA and you know. And if I was, it'd be kind of cool to have him come on and do this thing here and blah, blah, blah. But I was like, no, I don't think I want to do anything like that. And, um, you know, it is difficult because they're all in Los Angeles and I, and I have no interest in living in Los Angeles. So that's a problem. Um, but, but he and I talked about it to a certain extent because um, uh, I'm not sure which – a couple of the shows shoot sort of uh, like uh, 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off. They're in like this kind of a schedule. And I thought, well, if it's something like that, maybe I could make that work. I mean, I travel a lot for work now anyway. I do plays and musicals all over the country now, so I'm constantly traveling and constantly away from home. Um, but if it really entailed like a decision to move out to Los Angeles, I kind of think that wouldn't happen. I don't know. There are Brit a lot of actors who
0: go back and forth.
2: Yeah, Britt and I would talk about it and we'd see. But I, I think it would have to be... Um, a, a, a contract role of some kind. I don't, I don't see myself coming out and, you know, shooting a couple of episodes or something just because. I love what I do now. I really do. I, I get to play these amazing characters, you know. Just these last two years, I've tackled Sweeney Todd for the first time, and it was just a joy. And uh, the year before that I was playing Edna and Hairspray and it was just so much fun, you know, and Daddy Warbucks and Annie or, you know, doing Kiss Me Kate or I'm just doing all these great plays and musicals that I kind of got knocked off my track on way back when, you know, I, when I graduated from college and was studying craft i really intended to be a stage actor and may not have had any success in that but that was where my mind was and then the soap took me out of that and i don't regret any of it but now i'm getting to play all these roles that i didn't get to play before um and i'm just and i just love what i do so the soap work yeah i don't know i think it would depend on what the role was I'm sure it would be a bad guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of fans, obviously, I, I, honestly, I've seen fans talking about how they want you to be Jeff Weber on on General Hospital, which was Richard Dean Anderson's old role.
2: Oh, sure, yeah. I don't know. I think if they reached out, and uh, I'd just have to look at whatever they what the role was and sure. what the deal was, and then I'd kind of go, "Well, yes or no?" I don't know. I'm not sure.
0: Well. I know Mara would be happy. So would yeah. I if I saw you again in daytime. Yeah. I mean, it'd be all right. <laughs> but it's so cool. I mean, you have worked also a
1: lot. Uh, you know, you've been on Homeland. You've been on House of Cards. You know, it's, it's neat that uh, you seem to still have your fingers in, you know, both worlds.
2: I do. And um, I always appreciate that work. Uh, I'll tell you, though, it's, there's a byproduct of being on soap opera for so long when you're shooting on something like uh, Homeland or Criminal Minds or something like that, it just, uh, God, I shouldn't say this in public. It just bores the hell out of me. I mean, the day is so long. And, you know, we, I always use this example the, that I had a scene on Homeland there that was maybe three or four pages of two characters walking and talking down a sidewalk. And they called me to the set at six after I'd been there since like, noon they called me to the set at 6 p.m because it was a night thing and uh we wrapped at 2 a.m this was down in charleston i think and um so this like 10 hour period to shoot or or eight hour period to shoot this three-page scene we would have shot probably two-thirds of the script of guiding light that day in eight hours you know that's the way my mind works is is fast and furious and. so when I'm sitting around in a trailer all day, long, I just—I mean, people think that that's cool and glamorous, but it just bores the hell out of me. And um, I get
0: it. Yeah, it makes sense. You know,
2: it's fun to be around people. You know, Mandy Patinkin and I had a long talk during a lunch break, and that was pretty fantastic. But um, yeah, um, I like the work I'm doing on stage right now. That's what I like.
0: Well, and. Seems like a lot of our listeners around the country could catch you at various times. Totally.
2: Yeah, they're always like, you know, whenever I post that I'm doing a play, and I was just up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they're like, "Can't you do something in Houston?" You know, <laughs> right. like, "Can't you do something where I live?" And I think, well, I'll get around to it. I'm working in a lot of theaters all over the country these days, so.
0: Well, we got the whole year ahead
1: of us. <laughs> Well, Digest has, has been covering you since like before you were married, before you were a dad, mm-hmm. uh, and now like your kids are adults. Like give us an update on, on Britt and Connor and Kendall.
2: Everybody's doing great. Uh, you know, Britt, um, has become very successful in her business. Um, a few years before the show went off the air, I kind of had an inkling about it. I think in some ways, even before the cast did, because of my work with, uh, SAG and AFTRA. So as a union, you know, uh, uh, being on the national board and all that, I kind of had an idea of what was going to be happening, particularly in New York with soap operas before I think other people did. And it wasn't looking good. Uh, she decided to go back to get the school. The kids are now, you know, we're at that time, you know, Connor, I think was college and Kendall was, you know, up high school. And so she went back to school and took her degree in interior design and went to work for a big firm in New York for a couple of years and then, uh, hated it, uh, hating work, hated working for the firm that she was with. And she branched out on her own and developed Brit Newman design concepts, which you, any person can go online and go to her website and see. And she does these huge houses in Greenwich, Connecticut. She's working on one right now. That's ridiculously multi, multi, multi-million dollar mansion kind of stuff, She does townhouses and condos in Manhattan and she's just brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. She does beautiful work. Um, and, uh, she's really developed, she's her own business. I always joke that, uh, when I'm not working on stage or on television, I work for Brett. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I help run her books and stuff like that. Believe it or not, that's something I happen to have a skill in. And, uh, Uh, She pays me in martini golf. I always tell people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she's doing great. And uh, we're 32 years, I think, or something like that, or three. We're 1986, September of 86. So, yeah, um, and and we're doing great, you know, Uh, talking about retirement kinds of things. Um, Connor, our son, is 30, and he got married in September to Caroline. Uh, who we've, who's we've who been sort of with him and part of our family for the last five years, and uh, we adore her. Their marriage was, their wedding was absolutely gorgeous. at sort A of place up in the uh, manor up in Connecticut, further north of us, just gorgeous. And um, a lot about grandkids. So Britt and I are considering a move further up to be closer to them near Boston. Oh, wow. Uh, they both work in Boston. She's a lawyer, and he uh, runs a... Uh, um, an office building kind of space. and Kendall is uh, 27 years old. She's a manager at uh, Starbucks uh, here in Stanford, Connecticut, where we live. And, uh, she's doing great. You know, I mean, I'm immensely proud of both of my grown children and I love them both with all my heart. So it's all good.
0: Well, it sounds like everyone's doing well. And what a great update. Thank you.
2: Yeah and we've got our two cats and you know just living in sort of a normal life.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a good it's a good way to be. Well, we thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a fun talk and a walk down memory lane. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: It was for me too. It's nice to think back on some of this stuff. And I remember that there was a lot of great stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of great relationships.
0: All right, Well, we'll have right. a great yes, rest of the day again for joining us. Thank we'll talk you soon, you guys,
2: Robert. Have a- Have a good rest of the day, too. Take care. Thanks.
0: You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Robert Newman for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.